The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, and welcome to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you'll go to my website to subscribe to my uh, emails, and um, you can also, you know, connect with social media, do all those things we do at websites these days, and you can, uh, I have a page with all the shows I've ever done on it, and also an, an index page so that you can look for shows on specific topics. I'm also really pleased today to welcome the show's newest sponsor, Anna Elizabeth, to the Good Grief family. Anna was a guest on the show in February 2015, and it's especially wonderful that she's chosen to support the work on Good Grief. Her five facets approach to grief is powerful and accessible, and that's a combination I really love. So go to AnnaElizabeth.com, A-N-N-A-H, E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H dot com or follow the five facets link on my host page to take advantage of all she has to offer. And that link will also take you to a page where you can buy her book, Digging for the Light. Today, Anne Randolph is here with me. Anne is a playwright and performer. Her shows, including Loveland, Squeezebox, produced by Mel Brooks and the late Anne Bancroft, Down Home, Shelter, Miss America, have won numerous awards and played to sold-out crowds nationally and internationally. Her personal essays and interviews have been featured on NPR, PBS, and the BBC. Anna has, perform- Anne has performed her original material in countless comedy shows with fellow comedians including Will Ferrell, Cat Williams, Sherry O'Terry, Maria Bamford, Drew Hastings, Mo Collins, Thomas Lennon, and Ben Garant. As a member of the Writers Guild of America, she's written for Ghislaine Pictures, Lifetime TV, Brooks Films, PAX, Klasky Supo, in addition to writing the series pilot for If the Show Fits, Wear It. As a nationally recognized educator and keynote speaker, she's spoken and performed at universities, conferences, and mind-body-spirit centers. Her widely popular Write Your Life workshops are offered across the U.S., with annual stops in Kripalu, the Omega Institute, and Esalen. Welcome, Anne. Ah, great to be here. Thank you, Cheryl, for having me. I'm just so excited to have you here on April 1st. Happy April Fool's Day. Yeah. (laughs) We couldn't have planned that better. Well, I guess we did plan it, but it's great. Yeah, I know. I wasn't thinking of that when we... Yeah, for sure. First of all, I just really want to say how very, very much I enjoyed your performance, which you called a talk. I, I just can't 
quite call it a talk, although I understand why you did, at the Marsh in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. It, it touched my heart. It made me laugh. It made me cry. The whole works. And it's just uh, a pleasure to be able to talk to you more deeply about um, all I learned about you. Great. I was so glad you were there. And yes, I, I, people say, oh, my God, that was an amazing show. And I'm like, no, it was a talk. So, well, you I did explain. Bullet points. Yeah, yeah. Well, you did explain too that it's kind of a broader stroke and it's more about how you've created. But I laughed so much and cried so much through it. So um, I'm imagining it did incorporate some elements of how you perform. Yes, yes. Definitely. Because I'm still working things out and I like to work it out in front of a live audience. And and see where an audience has moved and listen for the laughs and, and also can feel the, the silence, the, the pauses, and know that if something's working or not working. So it's wonderful to be able to try it out in front of a live audience. Yeah, it didn't seem as if you were just trying something out. <laughs> but I'll, I'll have to wait. I, I, you, you said you're uh, bringing Loveland, your play, to... Um, my area in September, so I'll have to, I'll have to uh, pay attention to the difference, huh? Yes, yes, yes. It'll be polished. <laughs> polished. <laughs> polished, yes. You know, I, I want to start by talking just about, um, obviously you've been uh, writing plays, doing comedy, doing characters for a long time, but I wanted to talk a little bit bit about how you got started. You know, for, for those of us that were not funny as kids, I was an extremely serious kid. Uh, it's sort of fascinating how, how a, um, a, a spark to make funny, funny out, of, out of life originates. What do you think uh, that came from for you? I think both my mom, mom and dad, my, both were very funny and very irreverent. In the house, not in public, <laughs> but in the house, and did not censor themselves. And uh, I really appreciated that I could. I grew up in a household where I could pretty much say anything, and they said anything. And so there was a freedom, there was a liberation. But I quickly found out too that you couldn't say those things out in public. It, you know, you couldn't speak the truth in a in a way without getting in trouble. I was in trouble in high school and junior high and <laughs> for, you know, like possibly making fun of something a teacher did or, or impersonating a teacher or anything like that. It, then yeah, I was class clown in, in the principal's office. So couldn't do So it. you so you may as well make a career out of that because then yes. <laughs> you don't get as much trouble. I one of my children has done the same. Um we used to go out to dinner and she would um, do a perfect hysterical imitation of her teachers, and she had learned by then not to do it in front of them. But <laughs> so I, I've, I've witnessed that in my own in my own home, and <laughs> it's hard when you're that age, isn't it, to to be a, a young person and have that kind of eye to what's um, strange and unusual about people. Yes, yes. And my dad, who was a, a school teacher, seventh grade math teacher, he would do characters in the classroom. And then as 
you know, he would get in trouble, you know, but it was his way of, you know, alivening up a math class and he would impersonate Danny Kaye and, and different people. And it was not exactly looked upon with administration as a good way to teach math, but the kids loved it. And uh, so he was also often in trouble. Well, but I'll bet he had the kids' attention for what he was trying to teach as well, wouldn't you think? Yes, he did. He did. Uh, he definitely did. The kids loved him. Oh. Huh. So did you know then as you left home to do whatever whatever you left home to do that this is what you wanted to do with your life? Did it? Yes, did it- I did. I knew early on that I wanted to play different characters, but I also knew that it wasn't just being funny. I found early on that there was a... I was interested in both the hilarity and also the pathos, the underbelly of what was driving a character, the sadness or the poignancy or the darkness or the shadow. So I was interested in that, very much interested in that, but I didn't see that there could be a a career in that. I grew up in a small town, Loveland, Ohio, and, and never even heard of a solo performer or playwright. So I thought the only outlet for me would be something like Sorry Night Live or Carol Burnett, who I loved Carol Burnett. I was like mm. crazy about her. So I wanted that path because I didn't see another path other than that, that people could do a solo show and play with loss and grief and dark shadow, all that stuff, and outrageous humor. I had never seen anything like that. And, um, but that's what I felt early on. Just didn't know that there, there was a path. And, well, there wasn't really one. <laughs> <laughs> you had to make that up, huh? <laughs> well, but I, you know, I grew up on Carol Burnett and Gilda Radner and, you know, character um, entertainers, I guess. Um, uh-huh. And there is always something more than just being funny in it to me. I mean, yeah. there's a there's a depth to it of just seeing a person, um, and bringing them out. Right, their their essence and and their perspective of how they go through the day, how they see the world, and uh, really exploring that. I'm I'm really always been interested in that in human behavior, and so I loved making characters out of that and really playing with it. But I think for a long time I played at them rather than really. Like in Loveland, I feel like, oh, I finally, they, sometimes I feel like some of them were one-dimensional, which you would have in sketch comedy or over-the-top comedy. And now I feel like I, I got to this place where I really stripped down to, I got many shadings and levels of emotional depth to each character, which I, I think I've been going towards my whole life, but maybe a little scared to really show that vulnerability on mm. stage. And I uh, finally got it with, with Loveland. So it's vulnerable because in a way you have to find that part of yourself and show it or um yes. is that it yes. or is there yes. more to it? It is. It is. I mean there for a while I was using wigs and I'll occasionally wear wigs because I love wearing wigs and costumes, but I think some <laughs> I like could tell that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I stripped bare as far as really showing and it was grief that took me there. Um I wrote Loveland as a way to deal with, um, even though it's an outrageous comedy, there's a lot of, the audience is crying at the end of that, that show, and um, people recognizing their own selves in that character, Franny Potts, which is really just my alter ego um, that I wouldn't show in public. <laughs> and it was me dealing with grief. I had a lot of loss in a very short amount of time. 
And so the way to get through that loss was to write about it. And it was, my dad was dying and my mom had a stroke and was paralyzed on one side. And uh, yeah, it's hard. Very and challenging the, And those, those convergences in a way of events that kind of take you over the top or under the bottom or that, that just kind of lay you bare, um, they, they have a deep impact. Yes, yeah, and I, I think that that impact of it got me to write in a more fearless way than I had before. I'm like, I have nothing to hide anymore because I, I felt like there were so many losses in a, in a period of time that I just like said, screw it, I'm going for it. And <laughs> well, I didn't even say I'm going for it. I think it just it happened. You know, writing is about listening to what wants to come through you. And for me, it was just really listening. What wants to come through? What do I want to understand about grief? uh, What am I afraid of? Well, that's an interesting thing you're saying in, in, in regards to something that I think about really profound loss, which is that when you find that you are continuing to live through that, uh, at least for me, it removed a lot of other fears. Uh, mm. You know, what's bigger than what I'm going through, I guess. Right. right. Did that happen for you too? I think it did, yes. What's bigger than what's happening right now? There's a feeling that what else could happen? <laughs> <laughs> There's that too. <laughs> right, nothing could get worse than this. Um, and also just um, trying to understand you know, asking why, which is a horrible question to ask. No, I know that. You don't ask, why is this happening? You know? um, but everybody does it first. Yeah, they do. At least in my experience, uh, yeah. we all want to make, we all want to think that there's some meaning or reason, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we do. And we want the pain to end. So, you know, I think for me, I, you know, I, during that time, I was like, well, I still go back and like eating at McDonald's or binging or sleeping all day or doing nothing, you know, and you're in, you know, you just don't want to face the loss. You don't want to face the losses, so you shut down. And and so I wrote that into the show, that this character's coping mechanism for loss, hers was sexual fantasy. So there's outrageous comedy scenes with sexual fantasy and whatnot as her coping skill of dealing with loss. And um, so it was fun to take what I personally was doing, like a, a coping skill that was not cool, you know, and uh, and just exaggerate and embellish in a play. And then that cracked me up. Mm-hmm. So I'd have shame around like uh, like overeating or sleeping, not doing anything, shutting down, or even having fantasy, sexual fantasy, whatever. So then I would take it and then I would just exaggerate it within the play. And that I'm, would make I'm me laugh. Wa- I'm wondering... And if there's any way to give our listeners a little, you know, I've had the privilege of of hearing you as some of these characters, and I wonder if uh, there's something you might share that um, gives them an idea of the people that you embody when you're on stage. Mm. It's challenging because it's a physical transformation, which I think you saw. Yes, I sure did. I know. I, I know. I knew it would be a challenge. Yeah, <laughs> it's not, you know, I changed my face, I changed my voice, I changed the my hair, Every, I mean, I can just change the way I look, so I don't know if it would translate. Uh-huh. 
on uh-huh. the telephone. Although I must say, every character that you um, that you brought out on stage sounded remarkably different, as well as looking remarkably different. I guess that's what I was thinking of. But um, it sound it also sounds to me like, in some way, um, physically changing yourself connects you. Yes. To the person you're being? Yeah, I have to, yeah, I change physically and then I can, I can get into it. I can get to the emotional point of view of that character if I'm physically inhabited, right? So I'd have to, it, it would be, I think it'd be challenging over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, then people are just going to have to go see you because <laughs> yeah, they will enjoy it, I guarantee. Yeah. Just, so amazing. I, I can tell you, like, one of the themes in the, in the thread, thread is, like, those meditation teachers who's like, like, what gets in the way of us being a, you know, my character goes to a meditation class to try to get still her mind to deal with the death, you know? So she's like, I don't, is your, do you have any language barriers on your, on this Voice of America? Because that's another issue if I'll share uh, this sto- story. I, I think, I think it will be appropriate. I'm not worried about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> character, my character goes to a meditation class to, to try to calm her mind down and she's only coping in a negative way right now so she goes to this class and there's this kind of affected entitled kind of clueless yoga teacher who's like, so what gets in the way of us being able to still our minds you know, what gets in the way of us being able to still our minds and meditate <laughs> masturbate, I want to masturbate you know, so I interrupt the <laughs> yoga teacher and then I go on I said you know there's a whole scene that happens where she just splurts out everything that's on her mind in the middle of this very calming meditation class so I am Randolph would never say that but my alter ego just went ballistic during the meditation class in the play Love Land what a what a release yeah yeah I was at a lot of meditation events while my wife was dying and um, that was so, so very helpful. But if people went too far with it, like if they wanted to kind of eliminate the crappy stuff, <laughs> it would kind yeah. of, it would kind of boomerang, you know, <laughs> kind of, right. kind of go, go negative for me. <laughs> so, right. I mean, yeah, people go try to, they, do, they try to do a spiritual bypass, I think, or I have tried to do a spiritual bypass. Well, I'm going to not let myself feel that I just really just want to eat and, you know make love and forget about it, <laughs> you know, like I'll try to become a Zen yogi, whatever, to jump the pain, but no, you have to address the, well, here's an intense grief, can I sit with it without running to food, sex, can I just sit with it? And so, so I found writing was the best best way through this. One of One of my teachers used to say, you have to have a self before you can transcend yeah. <laughs> you have to be that. you have to be in yourself first <laughs> and i've i've always uh, rested on that we we have to have all these various experiences don't we yes yeah. it's already it's time true. for our first break wow, amazingly that was fast. wasn't that fast <laughs> take take these few minutes listeners to go to my host page sign up for my mailing list and newsletter and to find out more about ann randolph go to annrandolph.com Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. 
You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with the amazing and funny Anne Randolph, whose play Loveland is a comedy about loss. And we were talking before the break about how people try to kind of get out of um, really feeling loss or really experiencing loss, um, either through anything on the arc from having a lot of sex, drinking a lot, etc., over to um, trying to get out of it by meditating and and um, sort of transcending it. Um, but in the end, we can't get out of it, can we? No. <laughs> I wish. Yes. It sort of demands its time. <laughs> yeah. I, I was to say, though, you know, in the middle of those activities, it sure feels good for a second. Well, so. yes, if escape is possible... You know, for a minute, it's part of the it's part of grief too. I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was really interested in when the idea to uh, describe your experiences of of your parents' um, illness illnesses and death when when it came to you. Did you start writing about that right away, or did it take a while to kind of decide to dive into that? I think I was always writing, um, well, I was actually, I was at the Marsh in San Francisco, and I was writing another show, I was halfway through another show, and it had been about two years working on this new show, and it was to open, like, in six months, whatever, somewhere around six months, and then I went back to try to finish it. Instead, this other show just came flying through me, which mm-hmm. is Loveland, and... um I was really on a roadblock on the other show, and then I I had been journaling just about what was happening with my mom and dad, but I hadn't, you know, put it into an arc or anything. And then this character, I kept hearing this character, Franny Potts, 
on an airplane, and I could hear her voice, and it had nothing to do with death, but I kept listening to what sentence would come next, what sentence would come next. When I was in Ellen Bass's writing workshop at Esalen, I teach at Esalen, I also take classes whenever I can, and she was a poetry teacher. Mm -hmm. So I just committed the weekend to try to work on that other play and finish it, but instead I went back to listening to this character on an airplane, which had nothing to do with death, and then I kept writing it that weekend, and at one point in writing it, I look out the window on the airplane, this is as I'm writing it, and I see a state park out the window, a national park, which I think the captain has announced there's a national park outside the window in the play. And I realized, oh, my God, this is the way I could tell the story because my parents and I went to almost every national park. Hmm. And then I thought, theirs will be the... This will be an incredible way for me to write a story about grief is through memory of our time. I mean, I could I, being on a plane, I could flash forward, I could go back, I could... And I could feel such uh, a loss when I looked out the window. I can even feel it now as I as I tell you today. I could feel it in my voice, um, just the feeling of that moment when I looked out the window and realized the shared memories, all the beautiful memories there. Mm. You you also it what you're saying intersects with something I've just noticed so much in doing this show that there's this sort of um, sort of nonlinear kind of idea that comes up and you don't even know what it means at first and then it leads to your to your work you know it leads yeah. to what's in you to do um, and that seems to me to particularly happen to people in or after grief I, yeah. I don't know if that resonates with you, but that sense of just sort of following your own path a little bit without knowing really what's going on for a while. It, it's true, and, I, and I, I teach writing, and I'm always like, do not know where you're going. Do not know. Mm. <laughs> you know, just go from one impulse to the next. Do not go try to push anything through. And I was watching this character in this sentence, from one sentence to the next, reveal where I needed to to heal with grief and where I was stuck in grief. So, so your so your character is, taught you in a way. Yes. And it so did. for you, would you say maybe your characters are your deeper wisdom or, you know, it sounds as if they sort of inform you in a way that you're not prepared for sometimes. Yes, they do. And I had no idea. Yeah, it is. Like, well, they always say that when you write in your journal that, you know, that a deeper wisdom is coming through. This character that I was creating was an oddball, misfit, over-the-top, sexually charged. You know, I went to a total alter ego and exaggerated, probably like my shadow or dark side, right? But still, this oddball misfit had incredible wisdom and, and was guiding the plane ride. So I was listening to her. You know, your characters write themselves. It's like something else is being channeled through you. So, yes, she did. She let me, gave voice to everything that I was too afraid to speak myself. I, she, I she think that's... voice to everything. Yeah. That, that's also an amazing thing in terms of um, what we're free to say about grief. Yeah. You know, if if I think of my period of... Of grief, which actually started before my wife died, the, the, 
the most wrenching grief actually was earlier coming to terms with the fact that she would die. But um, there were just some parts of it, some things that happened that I did not feel, I felt too shy to say, like the incredible moments of ecstasy were pretty hard to to share right. with people. Right. You know? um, but but you have this way, it's fascinating to me, you have this way to do that kind of um, in a liberated, um, I don't know, an open place because you can put those voices into other mouths in a sense. Yes, and that is the word, Cheryl, is liberation, because I felt incredibly liberated uh, in in writing. Like, for example, Cindy said, you know, I'm so sorry for your, that you um, uh, lost lost your parent, you know, and my character said, I did not lose my mother. She died. You lose your car, mm-hmm. you lose your wallet. I did not lose my, oh, wait, let me check under the cushions where you find everything that you lost. <laughs> mother, are you there? You know, mm-hmm. so I can play with two things that people say and... Uh, no. Without without offending the individual person who said it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's know, another thing, isn't it? That that yeah. a lot of people don't know what to say, and, and they, they don't know what to say, and um, and all you can really do. I mean, everything sounds so cliche. Like, I'm so sorry for your loss. I I would just riff on all those things. I'd make fun of every single one of those things in my show. I'm she passed away. Well, or was she passed? Gas passed. Whatever. You know. <laughs> All of these things I would play with that people say to you and the inappropriateness of uh, people trying to be kind, but they're just saying cliche. And and my character doesn't really believe any of them. And yet at the end, the only way that... And that was the awakening of uh, the arc in the show is that the character then believed that people were doing their best, even though they're saying they're cliche. There's an identification. There's a humanity. We have all suffered loss. And I think... When you're going through loss, you think you're the only one. Nobody can feel the pain that you're feeling, right? Absolutely. Um, And I think that's what I came to in writing it was that, you know, everybody, everybody has suffered. Everybody has loss. And if I could, if you could show that feeling of isolation and loneliness and anger and all that, and then watch a character come to terms that people do care or do identify then you get to see an emotional turn in a character. And, and it's very moving, I think, as an audience to watch that happen. Um, well, the other thing is it. that, of course, we're alone in grief to an extent, but it, it really goes badly if we're, also, if we're not also accompanied. And so I was imagining being, being in an audience, you know, what maybe a couple of hundred people, maybe more sometimes, all in the theater together experiencing that invitation to grief and yeah. how, how that connects everybody in the room by way of their losses. It, it, it's true. I, I literally watch a, a room full of strangers, audience of strangers, become a, a community um, in in well this is this comes more right after the show this is this is what's amazing is is that it, like I've done tons of shows I've never had this response to a show before where people would wait in a lobby or backstage to tell me their own story of loss or grief 
Mm. And I thought, okay, yeah, I, I love to teach. I teach at Esalen. I thought, well, why not combine two things? I, I could just feel people's impulse to tell their story. And the reason they were feeling that impulse to tell their story is because my character was so unhooked, so uncensored in her grief, it gave people permission, or that character gave people permission to speak their own story about loss. And they would wait for me to tell me their story. So I thought, well, why don't we do it in a theater right after the show? So the show is 70 minutes. And then I just invite people to stay and I give out pens and paper. And I just have people write for like seven or eight minutes about a loss. And and then amazingly, a lot of people, 60% of the audience will stay and do that. And then someone will raise their hands to get up on that stage and, and share their own story. So this audience of strangers does become a community all talking about grief and loss and, and it's to see it happen is probably the most beautiful thing to watch that happen on stage. That's incredible. My, my youngest kid is um, about to graduate from college in theater and film. I'm a little scared given, given <laughs> I heard your, your story of <laughs> trying to make it early on maybe we'll talk about that later but um she's very involved in this this idea of um removing the wall a little bit between performer and uh audience and i i just cannot think of a more profound example than what you're describing of Mm -hmm. kind of making uh inviting people to share their own experiences that have been that have been opened by what you you've done. That just seems amazing to me. Yes, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's beautiful. It is really quite beautiful to watch watch people unfold. I remember being in Washington D.C. I was doing the show at the Arena Stage, and like a guy, you know, super conservative in a Brooks Brothers suit, taking the stage in his sixties, just weeping up there as he read about losing his wife. Another young guy from Georgetown uh, got up there super confident and then talking about four years wanting to, four years previously wanting to commit suicide for being gay, being bullied for being gay. Mm-hmm. You have all these different, and then some funny stories about a woman losing her favorite purse. That was her loss. <laughs> you know. <what> I mean? <laughs> so, so the gamut of loss, I mean, it could be loss of a dream, it could be loss of a loved one, pet, bird, purse. I've, I've heard a lot of different stories of loss, but in some are outrageously funny, some are just heartbreaking and um and it and you just watch this happen and and people that that wall that we're all alone in this loss just goes away, and then we're all in there together in that in that theater i I would think too that that's in a way a, a lot to as the person uh um giving people that opportunity that that can be a lot to hold sometimes. A room full of people um, feeling, feeling opened to that space in them. Yes, it is. And, and there's part of me, it's like, okay, when it's over, I, you know, I think about, I think about them, um, you know, because I think once you start to, a lot of people won't, pick up that pen and write or even look at grief or loss. And then all of a sudden you see a show and you think, okay, I'm going to do that. And then they've opened up a little. And then I always wish, is there a continuum? Is there somewhere they could go the next week or the next week, you know, that they can, 
they've opened that door mm. and just to have some place to continue on with talking about it because it takes incredible courage to talk about loss or your own vulnerability. And, and, they, and I see people do it nightly in the theater um, who might not have ever done it before. And there's a caretaking part of me that wants to see, well, what happened the next day? How are they doing, you know? Hopefully they find someone like me or someone like me. <laughs> yeah. You know, someone who, who or, or groups of other people. You know, when you become willing to talk about grief, you're, you're definitely not alone. I, was, we, I recently uh, put on a death salon, which was kind of a death cafe with the arts. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, we, we did this, one of the people said, stand up if, if you've lost a parent, a child, etc. And there, when, when she said, stand up if you've lost a parent, there were two people sitting down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not unusual. It's just, we, we don't have ways in, we don't have ways to talk about it. So you've given people a, a, a container and then they know, oh, it doesn't feel so bad to talk about, you know. In right. fact, it feels good. <laughs> yes, it feels good. It does feel good. It does feel good. So maybe, I guess you've planted a seed in a way. I, I guess so. I hope so. I mean, I think that's what's happening up there on stage with people as they get up and take the stage. Uh-huh. Because that introduces expecting the show to go that way because they're laughing all the way through the show and then at the end is when and I think I didn't write it that way but that's the way it came out it's like you're merrily rolling along laughing laughing and then boom this undercurrent comes the the hidden thing of this grief and denial grief and and then when it hits the character the audience feels it so that depth of feeling takes them by surprise and humor is what got them to trust and go on the ride. And then it's like, oftentimes somebody said, Ann, you purposely did that to like get them in on board and then wham them over the head, like wake up. But I did not, I did not do that, but that is what happens. So, um, but humor is great for opening one up to then other emotions. And and in a way, grief itself sort of clobbers us or whams us upside the head sometimes. That that feels familiar as a grief experience to me. Yes. Yeah. Just to sort of be going along and then just get plowed under. Bam, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we are at our second break. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, again, listeners, go to my Facebook page to, to like me, follow me on Twitter, make me a contact on LinkedIn. All my links are at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Let's have conversations. Um, write me. Let me know what you're thinking. And find out more about Anne Randolph's upcoming performances and writing workshops at annrandolph.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, 
Let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I am your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Anne Randolph, an actor, comedian, and writer who, through writing her play Loveland, kind of faced her own losses head-on and has been helping her audiences to do the same. Um, You know... I was I was thinking there's another aspect of this too, which is that people get up on stage. That's something. There was a study um, a number of years ago where um, they they put people's fears in order. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they asked people what they were afraid of, and and in order of <laughs> most fear, I think death was five or six, and number one was public speaking. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> so you, somehow, somehow, something in Loveland gets people over that hump. Yeah, they I mean, they, they they raise their hand. They've never been on stage before, but they they have to be. They just feel compelled to speak that story, and that rides over any fear. Is the need to say and speak their story. That must I can be, say that for my own self. I'm, I have terrible stage fright, and but the desire to speak the story will ride over that fear. I'll do it anyway. That's uh-huh. familiar to me lately. Now that I'm doing things that are so public, you know, there's yeah. there's a fear and excitement and a, a compelling drive in a way. Yeah. Yes. So you've yeah. had that all your life. I'm I'm a recent convert. <laughs> so I've had it all my life, and I imagine I'll continue having it. There's that book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. That would be my motto. So, <laughs> well, yeah. I, and and in that in that sense, I wanted to touch on your um, your life before Loveland, I guess, a little bit because um, to me, you you have sort of your life is a sort story of tenacity. Um, mm-hmm. It's not that you didn't have successes earlier, but you didn't have, you had difficult times kind of getting, especially uh, I got the sense from listening to your talk, 
very hard to survive even with the appreciation that was coming your way for what you were doing. Yes, yes. Well, I, I think I was always pushing the envelope in my comedy, and I was always told, Anne, you're inappropriate, <laughs> because <laughs> I wasn't playing it safe. And um, so I would literally, and I made a lot of sacrifices. I stated I worked at a homeless shelter for 10 years, working the graveyard shift at 7 at night, 7 in the morning, for a big whopping $8.60 an hour. <laughs> mm. And I took that job because, well, I had a lot, I, when I was in college, I lived in a mental hospital as a volunteer in exchange for writing plays with the patients, I got free room and board. So I've always had a, a uh, had a love for working with people that were mentally ill, and I think a lot of it came from the lack of filter and censor when I was around people with mental illness. There was no, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing to hide. And um, <laughs> so I was at the shelter, and I could sleep there. I was also leading some self-esteem groups from 7 to, like, 9, and... Uh, but I had my days free to create, and that was the most important thing was that I had time to create and write and take classes and, and study, and, and so I'd put up show after show, and my shows would win, like, Best Solo Show Los Angeles, Best Performer, but it took everything for me to rent that theater for $500 a night. You know, I never made any money. I was in the hole renting theaters and putting out my own phone numbers at the box office, and it was like, uh, you know, literally one-man production there. Um, mm-hmm. And just putting up show after show and winning awards but not making any money financially and not getting anywhere and also told that I was inappropriate for TV because uh, my characters were too edgy. Um, mm-hmm. It was just hard. It was hard. I mean, I think now, but now I look at it like, oh, my God, it's all worked out exactly as it should be. And <laughs> is that. First of all, I don't even have a TV. Don't watch TV. I love the theater, and I've always loved the theater. And then um, I had a good fortune of Mel Brooks seeing my show in one of these crappy old theaters and uh, producing me in New York City and working with Mel Brooks and the late Anne Bancroft for a year and a half, really crafting my materials. Uh, it wasn't Loveland. It was another show about my working the graveyard shift at a shelter and the loss I saw there in my own life and the women that I worked with, their loss mm-hmm. and the courage that they had. In, in moving forward in the face of homelessness. And once again, heavy issues, but done in a very comedic way. And uh, Mel and Ann loved that show and took it to New York. So that was my turning point as far as leaving the shelter and then starting to make my living. But I didn't make it right away because I had disaster happen in New York City as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about that because... Um, in my own case, everything I'm doing in my life now, in my work life, in my personal life too, but in my work life, is directly connected to the loss I experienced. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's sort of, you can't, uh, I can't imagine not having those, not having had those experiences. I mean, they're so, I don't know... Um, I I would have my wife back. Yes. But that would be very complicated since I'm married <laughs> to someone else. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, um but I I would not trade the experiences. Uh yeah. and and you know, I I noticed so much how your characters came from being in a homeless staying at a homeless shelter for 10 years in the mental institution. It's, it's an irony, huh? 
Yeah, it is. The very thing that, you know, this is what got me through was what gave me my gold for material. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and, and, more, and all the losses definitely made me more fearless because you get to the point where like, okay, I don't, I, I think I said that, that poem of Rumi, which I love so much, is the, the chickpea to the cook, which is a chickpeas being stirred in a pot. And it leaps to the edge of the pot and says, I want out. Why are you torturing me? And the chef hits it with a ladle, knocks it back into the pot and says, um, you need more flavor, more character. Now boil some more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, wow, with each one of these losses, man, I have boiled and I've become more fearless, <laughs> fearless on stage as a writer and a performer from these losses. Like I just like will say and do anything. I don't have, I don't have the fear anymore. I guess I always thought I was kind of fearless, but each, in one sense, I think I was playing it safe and hiding until now I feel like with this last one, it's all there. But of course, probably next year I'll write. I'll say it wasn't really there; it was this one. So who knows? <laughs> it's evolving. Maybe, um, but I do think. Uh, I mean, obviously, you had other losses before. Before what what um, turned out to be Loveland, but yes. um, there are those moments that really are quite transformative, and yes. really do change something basic. That's the feeling I get when you're talking about it. Yes, yeah. I think the loss in New York was huge. I mean, I was at a homeless shelter. That was a biggie because it was, you know, working with Mel and Ann for a year and a half, getting working at the shelter 10 years, and now I'm going to go from shelter to pretty much Broadway, then producing the show, open on 42nd Street. And um, uh, But right before we opened, I think you heard the story, Ann was diagnosed with cancer, and then I was turned over to another producer. So when I opened in New York, there was not, not like a public publicity machine or marketing machine behind that show mm. and so I knew I was opening New York without a machine behind me you can't do eight shows a week for six weeks without a marketing machine behind you I and wouldn't imagine yeah it wasn't Anne or Mel's fault Anne was now dying and this other producer didn't pick up the ball it was really I think my fault because I didn't go to Mel and say hey this is what's happening but I, I really pretty much froze because I didn't feel I could go to him when his own wife was dying and say, what about me? <laughs> you know, I, I, I take responsibility for not having the courage during that time to really speak up about what I was seeing happening. Um, and then when Mel saw what was happening, he started taking out quarter page ads in the New York times to try to turn the ship around. But it was, it was too late. And, um, is it, it was a devastating because I'm working 20, 20 something years to get to this point of Broadway, and then it all collapsed. Show closed, no money, no prospect for a job. I go back home with parents. Mom had a stroke. Dad, I mean, it was just like one right after the loss of the dream, the loss of everything in that that time. So it was it was hard. So that was kind of leavening previous to. Um, previous to you know the the subject you're talking about in Loveland, it's also present in that experience for sure. That I had a guest a few weeks ago who's who's um, she's written a book and it is about loss of dreams and how profound that is and how hard yeah. it is to um, recover from that and and go forward. But I did not. Think I would recover from that one, actually. <laughs> mm. that what did die. you think would happen instead? 
I think afterwards, I remember saying to myself after it all happened was, you didn't die and you didn't die. Um, I thought there was some sort of actually happiness that I didn't die. Because going into it, I thought I'm going to die. I'm entering it at my dream. I'm getting my dream. But before I'm getting my dream, I know it's going to die before I even get there because there's not a a plan in place. So you're going into some like a train wreck. Mm. You're going to open to a train wreck. And you, you, and it, you saw it coming in a way. Yeah. And so that part was, was the worst. It's like, and I couldn't turn the train wreck around as much as I tried. I, I would try to advertise on the street dressed up as a crack whore, which was one of my characters trying to pass out postcards. My parents were going up and down the TKTS line saying, please come see my daughter. I was doing everything to try to turn the ship around. And um, that desperation and fear and like, I'm going to make it happen no matter what, you know, but there's no way I could fill 16, 1800 seats a week. You know, I, I couldn't do it. And so that pushing and drive and fear and all of that, and then the show closed and then like, yeah, it was devastating, but there's something like it's over. It's mm. over. And I, I didn't die. Bottom line. And I had no desire to create again. I had no desire to do anything. I had no desire. That's when I kind of just went in um, depression because I didn't have any, I didn't really have any job prospect or anything. Um, I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have, didn't have, you know, and I had some beautiful things happen in that time as well where an old boyfriend's mother of mine gave me $10,000 and said, get back on your feet. That was huge during that time. I had another friend, a patron that let me come back, live in LA in her extra room. So I go back and forth on that and then going back at home, uh, helping with my parents. And then Mel said, Ann, let's try to write the movie. So he, we were going to write the movie anyway. And then he gave me a check uh, for the movie a small, you know, there was enough things that turned around that got me back on my feet again. But I also knew that the movie wasn't going to happen because Anne was dying and she was going to play the lead in that movie. So that was, I felt like he did it because he really felt like, well, I don't know. He he wanted it to happen, but it was just, it couldn't happen. So it, it was like, I'm thinking of this song, a jazz tune called Yay Boo, Yay Boo. There's a tavern in the town, yay, mm-hmm. but it's closed on a boo, you know. Yes. <laughs> it, was like, that was, it was like, yay boo, yay boo. That was that time period. But most but, of all, I, just, I lost uh, really a, a will to create afterwards. It took a while to come out of that. You know, I, I'm thinking right now um, just about what it is to surrender to the love of other people. Um yeah. That, that those moments where you just can't help yourself and you need to be helped, yeah. if, if you are helped, it really changes, at least for me, it changed my conception of, of who and what I am and how I fit with things. Um, and and I hear, I'm so touched by the people that really held you in that time. Yeah, I, I, I had... People that saw what were, I mean, Mel saw what was happening, you know, from taking out those ads for $20,000 in the New York Times to, you know, this woman in uh, Los Angeles letting me stay at her place. And 
this old boyfriend's mother, 10 grand. I mean, it was like, wow. And wow. I got back out on my feet again. Yeah. And um, then you get on them differently, don't you? You would? It's different when you get back on your feet than it was before. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, different. Yeah. It's a... Uh, well, yeah. and guess what? It's time to We're say out of time. Oh, can you believe it? I've had so much. I, I've really enjoyed talking with you today. I hope we, we stay in touch. I'd love to come to one of your writing workshops someday. That just sounds wonderful. Thanks so much for being yeah. here. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Next week, I'll have Julie Sager Nirenberg here, whose book, Daddy, This Is It, Being With My Dying Dad, is a tribute to the beautiful and poignant death she experienced with her father. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.